Okay, we are in uh, Genesis 17. We started uh, in the chapter last week. And uh, we got about two or three verses into it. We'll make a little more progress today, hopefully. And uh, so let's uh, begin reading in, uh, in uh, chapter 17, verse 1. And uh, let's just read uh, today down through verse 14. Uh, there's actually, it's actually more of a unit than that, but let's just take the time to read down through verse 14 and then uh, review some of the things we talked about last week. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Uh, excuse me. Uh, wait, uh, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And then he goes on from there and, and discusses Sarah's part in this whole plan, which we will get to eventually. <clears throat> but last week, we, we just kind of looked at more or less at kind of the introduction, verses 1 and 2, and the first part of verse 3 of the chapter, and what do you remember that we talked about last week? Excuse me? Okay, and they were? Okay, all right, great. We were introduced to four new names. Actually, one of those is a new person <laughs> that we haven't met yet, and that's Isaac. But there are four, two people who get a change of name in this chapter, and one person that we were introduced uh, to uh, by a new name, a name uh, different than he's gone by before. Uh, and uh, who is that? Okay, El Shaddai. What's the significance of that name? Who is it? Okay, it's God. Okay. And what is the significance of the name El Shaddai and its introduction at this point in the story of redemption? He's, he's powerful enough to overcome the obstacles. Okay, okay. The, the whole idea there of the name is, is, uh, is that uh, it's translated in some translations, he's, he's, uh, it's translated as God Almighty. The idea is God's might or God's power. And, and we talked about the contrast, or, or the, uh, yeah, we could, could call it the contrast, I guess, between the name El Shaddai and the name Elohim. The name Elohim refers to God as the creator and, this, and the one who, who has, has brought the world into existence and set the rules 
uh, or, or laws of nature, if you will, by which the whole world and the universe operates. And, and when we talk about El, uh, Elohim, that's the idea that, that comes to our mind. But now we talk about El Shaddai and the idea of El Shaddai is he's so, he is so powerful and he is so great. Not only did he set the laws of nature in order and the laws by which the universe operates, but he is sufficiently powerful that he can actually overcome or reverse, if you will, or, or, or overthrow the laws of nature if he has to in order to accomplish his purposes. Okay. So God now introduces himself by this name to to Abraham or Abram still at this point and, and introduces himself as El Shaddai as if to say, whatever the obstacles are in your life to the things that I want to accomplish, I am able to do this. Okay? What else? Right. In what way? Well, it's the first time that he actually asked to be a, be a man. I, I mean, because there was a lot previous to that, even though he was a righteous man, that he was still a lot of bad things. Yeah. A lot of bad decisions. Yeah. And I think at this point, he was asking more than ever. Okay. 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 Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, when we hurry ahead of God in as we say is diminished, he's not actually diminished, but in our mind God is diminished. And the way we view God he is diminished when we feel like we need to run ahead, press ahead and, and do his work for him, we're actually lowering our estimation of God. And, uh, and that is in part what happened in Abraham's, in Abram's life. And, and for 13 years, apparently, he lives under this mistaken impression that Ishmael is going to be the descendant, this product of his own effort and Sarah's effort rather than the product of the miraculous uh, work of God. Okay. Anything else? Oh, yeah. At least the birth of Isaac was, yeah, the natural course of things was, at least it wasn't the natural course of things. Yes. Where the birth of Christ is just totally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it is important. Yes. Well, and, and you're probably right in that. Yeah, you're probably right in that. And it is important to make that distinction. There is a significant difference between the birth of the two. Uh, but, of course, the, the, the point that we're trying to make last week is, is to remember that the birth of Isaac really was miraculous. It, you know, it was, it was God really reordering nature, so to speak, in order that, uh, in order that he could accomplish his, his promised uh, covenant with Abraham. Okay? Anything else? Okay. 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 So there are really kind of three things that were given in this chapter uh, that that are kind of tokens of this covenant that God is establishing with Abram at this point, and two of them have to do with signs that God is giving to Abram and Sarah. Uh, and th- those two things are a new name for Abram that we'll talk about today and a new name for Sarai, which hopefully we'll talk about next week. But the other thing is something that, that God tells Abram to do and his descendants, as we'll see today, something that God tells them to do, which is really a sign in their lives and in their bodies and in their hearts of, of their commitment to this covenant. Okay, so it's kind of in one sense, two of the signs are signs that God gives to 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 mankind, if you will. And one of them is a sign that Abram gives, if you will, to God. Okay, it also, of course, serves as a sign in his own life 
but uh, so so we have those three signs. And then we also talked about how we this chapter is is kind of is broken down into three sections, if you will. They have to do with the participants in this covenant, and they are God and Abram and Sarai. Okay, and so each one of those sections begins with that phrase "as for," so that in verse uh, in verse uh, four. He, uh, God begins his part with, he says, as for me. And then he discusses what he will do in this covenant. And then in verse nine, he says uh, to Abram, uh, he says, God said further to Abram, now as for you, that is for Abram. So he discusses what Abram's part is in this uh, in this whole covenant thing. And then in verse 15, uh, which we won't get to today, he says, then God said to Abram, as for Sarai. So each one of these sections is broken down with this as for uh, phrase, as for me, as for you and as for Sarai. And that gives us kind of an outline of the chapter uh, and an outline of, of God's discourse here, or God's speech, if you will, to Abram about the covenant. Now, we also talked last week uh, where he, he talks here about God establishing his covenant. What is what does he mean by that at this point? What's he talking about? Is this a new covenant that we've not had before, or why does he why does he say it this way? Okay, okay. Uh, he it's interesting here that he doesn't use the term that he used in chapter fifteen when he refers to cutting a covenant. And as we've talked about several times in our study of Genesis, the idea of cutting a covenant is where it's it's where the covenant is actually made, where the covenant is actually entered into. Okay. What God is saying at this point, not is not that he's making some new covenant, which is distinct from the covenant that he that he established or, or that he cut in chapter 15, but rather that now is when he's going to put it into action so that within a year from the date that God speaks to him here, Abram will have a son. So so what God is saying here at this point is, is uh, I'm ready to act now. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're going to execute this thing. We're going to carry this thing out. And so here's what I'm going to do. And here's what you're going to do. And here's what I'm going to do for Sarai, et cetera, et cetera. And here's what you're going to do about Ishmael. And so God now says, it's time to act. And so things are going to start to unfold. So as, he, so as he's saying, I'm going to establish my covenant, he says it a couple times here in the chapter. The idea is... We're, we're getting started now. I've promised you this for many years and now the time has come. Okay, We are on actually the threshold of the, of the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise. Okay? Uh, okay, well let's pick it up then and go on. Uh, in, in verse 4, uh, God begins then to talk about establishing the covenant. And in this... In this, in chapter 17, there's just there's a ton of stuff here, and we could probably actually spend a number of weeks discussing chapter 17 and discussing the whole issue of the covenant and and uh, uh, the duration of the covenant and the conditions or non-conditions of the covenant and that sort of thing. It's really a pretty important uh, passage in Scripture as far as the unfolding of future events and even as pertains to our. Uh, understanding of eschatology and end times and all sorts of things. A lot of it, uh, a lot of, uh, of of our understanding and our framework by which we view those kinds of things is shaped to some degree by the ideas that are set forth here in chapter 17 about this covenant with Abraham. Okay, and we could, like I say, we could spend many weeks on discussing all the various aspects of that. And I don't intend to do that today. I want to just kind of pick up on on uh, two or three major ideas and themes that are set forth here in this chapter and, 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 and discover from them the things that I think will really make a difference for you and I as we sit here in our chairs today and as we get up out of our chairs and go to work tomorrow. Okay, So, uh, the first thing that happens here in chapter 17, beginning in verse 4, uh, is God's part of the covenant, if you will, where God sets forth the things that He promises to Abram that He is going to do. And there are four kind of general promises. There are specific details given to some of these general promises. But there are four general promises that are given to us in verses 4 through 8. Can you identify them? 
What are they? Okay, the whole idea of this many descendants, and it's pretty clear. He says it over and over again in several different ways. Uh, you're gonna, I'm gonna multiply you exceedingly. He says there in verse two, in verse four, he talks about a multitude of nations. In verse five, he uses that same phrase again, a multitude of nations. And then he goes on and talks about, I'm gonna make nations from you, and kings are gonna come forth from you. So the whole idea of this whole host, or just an uh, innumerable number, if you will, of, of descendants that Abram is going to have. Okay, so that's the first promise. What's the second part of God's promise in this covenant? Okay, uh, he, he is going to change his name. Uh, he, he is going to change his name, but... But that's more a sign of the promise rather than the promise itself. Okay? So what what other promise do we have? Okay. Okay. Uh, the the promise does include his descendants, yes. So that's part of his that's part of part that's part of part one. So part one is the descendants and the inclusion of the descendants in this promise. Well, what else? The land, okay? There's a specific promise about the land. What land is he talking about? Okay? He's very specific. The land of Canaan, okay? So there's a promise about descendants and there's a promise about the land, okay? And how long would this land be included in this covenant promise? Forever, okay? It's an everlasting possession, okay? Uh, and, and it's the land of Canaan, but he also identifies it another way. Before he calls it the land of... Before he identifies it as Canaan, how does he identify it? The land of your sojourning, okay? So it is specifically the land where Abram's been wandering around with only a promise now for, excuse me, 25 years, Okay? I should point out to you, too, that this, this part of the covenant has never been fulfilled. Okay? This has not been fulfilled. Israel has not been in possession of the land indefinitely and throughout all its generations at this point. Okay? Uh, and, I should, and I want to point out something else to you. That God has now made a promise to Abraham. Actually, he made it much earlier than this, but he's making it again here. God has made a promise to Abram, uh, Abram of a place. A specific geographical place of a physical place in which the covenant is going to be fulfilled. Okay, and and that should uh, that should trigger in our minds a, a recollection of of something that God did a long time ago before this, which is what when we start thinking about God providing a place. Okay, but going back before Abram, way back. God made a place in the garden. Okay, God made a place in the garden, and and this will be a uh, this will this will be a key theme that we're going to talk about today is this whole idea the association of what's happening in Abram's life here at this point with what happened in the garden. Okay, that when God created Adam and Eve, He made a place for them. He created not only the world in, in which mankind was to live, but he actually created a place, paradise, if you will, or the Garden of Eden. And he brings Adam to the garden and he places Adam in the garden. And the idea is that God not only created man as a physical creature, okay, as a material physical creature, but God created a physical material place, a beautiful material place in which he was to live. Okay? And that was part of, part of God's original plan. Now we find in this covenant that God is establishing with Abram that God is not only making a promise to Abram as a man, but he's also promising that this is going to be carried out or fulfilled in an actual material place. 
the place, Abram, that you've been walking around in for 25 years. The land of Canaan. The land of your sojournings. This is the land that will be yours and your descendants as an everlasting possession. Okay? So we have in the, in the, in the covenant promise here in verses 4 through 8, so far we've come up with this promise of just a multitude of descendants, all of whom are going to be part of this covenant promise. And we have the land. Okay. What else do we have? I will be their God. Okay. So here we have now a third part of the promise. Is that is that in this in this covenant agreement that we are entering into, this thing that I'm going to do, I'm going to give you this, this massive number of descendants and I'm going to give you a place as a permanent everlasting possession in which to dwell. Okay. And, and in this whole context, I'm going to be your God. We're going to have this ongoing, intimate fellowship with one another. Okay? And so those are three things. And then there's a fourth part of the promise. And I've already alluded to it and mentioned it several times here as we've been talking this morning. So you should have it right on the tip of your tongue. The fourth and final aspect of the promise is that it is what? Everlasting. It's an everlasting promise. Okay? So those are the four aspects of the promise that God makes to Abraham or Abram at this point. And, uh, and in the context of making these promises, he tells Abram that as evidence that this is going to happen, what is he going to do for Abraham immediately at this point? What does he do? Verse 5. I'm going to change your name. Okay. Now, his name up to this point has been what? Abram, which means what? Exalted Father. That's a pretty cool name to have, isn't it? Unless you're Abram. You ever think about that? Here's this guy walking around for 99 years with the name Abram. He gets married. The woman he marries is barren. And so for all of his married life, here's a guy who walks around with the name Abram, exalted father, and he is childless. And, and, I, and I thought about this, that, that this very name, which we think of would be a, a name of, of Respect and a name of high esteem and a name that any guy would be glad to have was probably for Abram almost a thorn in the flesh. Think about it. Every time somebody said, Hey, Abram, and he stopped to think about his name and the meaning of his name, and he'd go, You know, it's just like almost a dagger in your side. I'm not an exalted father. I'm not a father at all. And so finally, when God comes to him and says, I'm now going to establish the covenant. I'm now going to put into motion these things. It's time for me to change your name. And I'm going to change your name to Abraham. And from this point on in the in redemptive story, whenever he's referred to, he's referred to as Abraham. All I have to do is train myself to quit saying Abram and start saying Abraham, right? Okay. So his name is Abraham, and what does Abraham mean? Father of a multitude. Okay. And so now, every time someone calls him by name, and you can imagine that first year, especially before Sarah got pregnant, and somebody comes up to him and says, Hey, Abram. And he says, Oh, by the way. Uh, my name is now Abraham, father of a multitude, you know. You can imagine the response he probably got. But this is, and we're talking a lot about 
the signs of the covenant here this morning. And this is the first one that we have. The second one we'll have, we'll talk about is circumcision. But we have these signs of the covenant. This is the first sign. This is the sign that God gives to Abraham or to Abram or Abraham. This is the sign that God gives to him that this is all really going to happen. Now, if I had been Abraham or Abram and God said, "Okay, we're going to put this stuff in motion and I'm going to give you a sign. What is what sign would you like me to give you that I'm really going to carry this stuff out and we're and we're going to start really pretty quick here now? What would you ask for? Yeah. I don't know what I would ask, but I, I don't think I would ask for a new name. <laughs> you know, of course, Abram didn't ask for a new name. He just got it. But but as I thought about it, I thought this is actually the most powerful sign that God could give. And the reason is, is it is because it is the word of God. Yeah, we read this and we go, yeah, okay, you know, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. But what are the people around you think? They're thinking, he's been their son too long. This guy's gone off the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If any, I mean, you know, next week, he comes up with some things and they're going, oh, man. Yeah. Just, I that happens a lot of times for people when they follow the Lord, isn't it? To the rest of the world, they just look pretty weird. They look, pardon? Noah. Yeah, Noah. Guy had to look like an absolute crackpot. An absolute crackpot. But here is Abram, and God gives him the name Abraham. And it is the best sign God could give him because it is his word. And his word cannot fail. I don't know who gave him the name Abram. I'm assuming it was his father, Terah. And his father, Terah, of course, was not a believer, was not a worshiper of God. And so whatever he had in mind when he gave Abram that name, you know, it's kind of neither here nor there. But now, but now he, has a, he has a name from God. God has given him a name. God has spoken. And God's word cannot fail. He has no greater sign that God can give than his word. There's no greater evidence that God can give to you or to me of what he intends to do than the word he has spoken. Sometimes, and he has throughout history, throughout redemptive history, at times he has given other signs as well. But there is no sign greater than his word. And God has spoken. And he has said, you will be the father of a multitude. And so your appropriate name now is Abraham. And so he says to Abram, I'm going to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you this. See, I've got to retrain myself now. I've been saying Abram for all these weeks. Now I've got to retrain myself. <clears throat> but he says to Abraham, he says, OK, I'm going to give you this vast host of descendants. And I'm going to give to you and to those descendants the land. And I am going to be to you and to those descendants your God. And this is going to be an everlasting agreement. And as he sets that forth, once again, our minds go back to where? To Eden. Our minds go back to Eden. You see, in the covenant that God is establishing here with Abraham, He is recalling, He is renewing, if you will, the original Adamic covenant. When God created the heavens and earth, so you're going to have to really put your minds to work here now and go back and remember things we taught clear back in May and June when we first started our study of Genesis. Yeah, it was almost a year ago. Okay, you got to go back now and think about the things we talked about clear back in chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Genesis. That when God created this magnificent universe, what did He have in mind? 
What was he about? Okay. With who? What? Okay. With mankind. Okay. God creates this magnificent creation. And the pinnacle or the point of that whole creation, as we talked about at the time, was man. Mankind. Okay. That was the point of the creation. Okay. We weren't created for the earth. The earth was created for us. God created the earth. He made this fantastic place that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. This beautiful, splendid place. And He populated it with, with fish and birds and cattle and beasts and trees and flowers and all, this, and all this wonderful place. And then at the end, then He finally creates man. And we have there at the beginning in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we have the beginning of a theme that we talked about when we, when we introduced the book of Genesis. We talked about several themes that, that, that develop throughout the book of Genesis and on in through the Pen, throughout the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses. Okay. And one of the themes we talked about that, is, that develops in Genesis and goes all the way through the Pentateuch is the theme of the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, I'm going to really test your recollection here. Okay? There are four elements to a kingdom. And these four elements to a kingdom are brought out throughout the Pentateuch. And two or three of them are particular are emphasized in the book of Genesis. Okay? Can you remember what are the four things that constitute a kingdom? Pardon? A ruler, okay. A king? A place? Pardon? The people? And finally, uh, and this isn't so obvious, but a rule, uh, rules, laws, okay? So you have four things. You have... You have a people, you have a place, you have a king or a ruler, and you have rules. Okay. Now, two of those in particular are emphasized in Genesis. That is, the people and the place. Okay. And also, to some degree, the ruler. Okay. And then as you move on into Exodus, you begin to get more, the, more emphasis on the ruler and the rules. Okay. The laws that are set forth. Okay. When we remember that that's, that's a theme that begins clear back in Genesis chapter 1, that God is about establishing a kingdom in which there are these four elements. Okay? The people, the place, the ruler, and the rules. Okay? And that is what he's about. Clear back in the, in, in the book, uh, in, in Genesis, in, in the first chapters of Genesis. That that's his intention and that's his purpose. What does that sound like to you? Doesn't that sound like what we just read in Genesis chapter 17? You see, this is this idea of the theme of the kingdom of God coming up again now in chapter 17. Okay. Now, a lot has happened between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 17. Most significantly of all is what? The fall. Okay. Because in... At, at the very beginning, what God had in mind, we talked about all this when we were going through the first part of Genesis, what God had in mind in creation, His, His purpose or His desire was to create this beautiful place, but not for the sake of a place, but for the sake of a place in which He could put His people that He was going to create. And he wanted to create these people. Now, remember, when he created the heavens and the earth, when he created the birds, how does, it, how does this describe his creation of the birds? It was good, yes, but, but more than that, what did he do with, when he made the birds? I, if I could ask better questions, I'd get better answers. Okay, I know that. Okay. <laughs> Pardon? It's, uh, 
<laughs> what did he do with the skies when he created the birds? He pardon? What'd you say? It, it was filled. He, when when he when he created the birds, boom! There were just birds everywhere, eagles and hawks and chickadees and and sparrows and you know every kind of bird. And it was just and there were gazillions of them. I don't know how many there were, but there was a bunch. Okay, and the work the earth. And then when he created fish, what did he do? He filled the ocean. They were just instantly. There were just swarms of fish. You know, just millions of fish everywhere. They were just scads of them. You know, and he did the same thing when he created the trees and the flowers and the and the beasts and the cattle. And there were just all kinds of them everywhere, right? And then when he created man, what did he do? One. And then a few hours later, two. And then what does he do? Okay, it's your job now, folks. You fill the earth. God backs off. He just puts two of them. Man and woman. And he backs off and he says, now it's your job to fill the earth. And we see there in Genesis chapter 1 that it was God's intention that mankind regenerate, procreate, and absolutely cover the earth with millions and millions and millions and millions of people who were as innocent and pure and as in fellowship with God as Adam and Eve were. That was his intent. That's what he wanted. He wanted a kingdom of millions of people who were as pure and innocent and devoted to God as Adam and Eve were. Can you imagine a world like that? Isn't that spectacular? And he created this beautiful world in which these people were to live and have food and eat and be able to exercise their creative powers. And the most spectacular creative power of all that he gave to them was the power to procreate. And he says, do it and do it willy-nilly. Let's, let's do this big time. Let's fill the earth. I want millions and millions and millions of people with whom to worship, with whom to fellowship and who can worship me and enjoy me and know me forever. And that was his intent. But before Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve even had one child, Sin enters in. And the whole plan is just decimated, right? No. Okay. So, so how does he prevent it from being? Sin has entered in. The destroyer has come in. And he appears to have destroyed it. What does God do? You say it's not destroyed. How is it not destroyed? And his ultimate plan was Genesis chapter 17. You see, what I'm saying to you is that in, in God's covenant promise to Abram, to Abraham, he is saying, I'm still in charge and I'm still in control. And I'm still going to accomplish my purposes. Because those same ideas and themes that we saw in chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Genesis, the idea of a people and a land and a God forever, that same idea we now see in Genesis chapter 17, don't we? We see that God is still in charge. But sin has entered in and sin has corrupted and sin has polluted and sin has destroyed so much of the creation so that it's necessary that this God who is going to carry this plan out not only be Elohim, but that He also be El Shaddai. That He be the Almighty. That He could be the One who would be sufficiently powerful and sufficiently mighty that he could destroy the works of the destroyer 
and still carry out this plan that he had to establish a kingdom, a world full of people who love and worship him and whom he enjoys and fellowships with forever. And so that's what he's about with Abraham. That's what he wants to do through Abraham. And as Rick said, he knew this all along. We didn't know this. You know, Enoch didn't know it. Noah didn't know it. They didn't know how all this was going to work out. They just believed God and trusted God and God had promised that He was going to send someone to crush the serpent's head. And now, with Abram, here in chapter 7, Abraham in chapter 17, we begin to get the picture. Oh, this whole idea of the kingdom, it's not, that hasn't been set aside. He still has a plan to establish this kingdom. And I'm going to carry this out and it's going to be an everlasting covenant. It's going to be an everlasting thing that I do. And I am going to populate a place with people who love and adore and worship me. And I am going to walk with them and I am going to be their God. And they are going to be my people. And I'm going to do it. And I'm going to overcome the fall. And I'm going to overcome Satan. And I'm going to overcome the curse. I'm going to overcome all of this. And I can do this because I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Now, Abraham, there's something I want you to do. I want you to keep my covenant. And specifically what I mean by this is that I want you and your descendants after you throughout all of their generations, every male, to be circumcised. And now we enter into that kind of puzzling to us, maybe a little ugly, kind of embarrassing thing of circumcision. You know, what is this all about? Well, it's really pretty spectacular. God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, "Okay, I've changed your name. That's my commitment to this thing. Now, the evidence of your commitment to this thing is I want you and all of your descendants and all the males in your house, your servants who are born in your house and the servants that you buy from foreigners. I want them to all be circumcised in the foreskin of their flesh. He's very specific. He says that about three times. Okay, He's very specific about what he's talking about. And so God places upon Abraham, Abraham this responsibility of circumcision, not only upon him, but upon his descendants after him throughout all of their generations, this idea of circumcision, the removal of the foreskin from the male procreative organ. Okay. And we kind of go, this is this isn't very nice to talk about in mixed company. What's all this in here for? You know, what is God doing here? Well, why did he give circumcision? Why does he say in this chapter that he gives circumcision? As Abraham's responsibility. as a sign of the covenant. Okay? We have to understand that circumcision is a sign of the covenant. Okay? Now, you say, well, is it the covenant or is it the sign of the covenant? Because initially he says, I want you to keep my covenant. Then he says, this is the covenant that you'll keep. You'll do circumcision. But then he says that it's a sign. I want to suggest to you that circumcision is not the covenant per se. The covenant is God's promise, what God is going to do. But the only way that a person can be a participant of or beneficiary of this covenant is how? Pardon? No. It's what the Jews thought. But what did Paul tell us?
Romans chapter 4. Okay. Paul says it's by faith. And there's actually some pretty good evidence right here in chapter 17 that it's by faith, but most of the Jews missed it. Paul didn't miss it, and many Jews didn't miss it. And like I say, Paul didn't miss it, and he brings it out. He makes it very clear to us that it really is by faith. And so we come to understand then that circumcision is a sign, it's a token. And we actually have something similar to that in the New Testament. Okay. What is the sign of the New Covenant in the New Testament? Nope. <laughs> That's what we always think. You know, we tend to think that, but really it's what? Now, what's the sign? What is the sign? What is the thing we do that proclaims the new covenant? We do it regularly. What? The Lord's Supper. What does he say? He says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Paul says, as often as you do this, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death. Okay. So the Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant. But what does Jesus call it when he institutes it in Luke? And Matthew and Mark, etc. What does he call it? He says, this is the blood of my covenant, doesn't he? He says, this is the blood of my covenant. But what we understand he means is that it is really the sign or the token of the covenant. And we do it periodically. We do it regularly, actually. We take the cup and we take the bread in order to proclaim the new covenant, to proclaim the Lord's death. Right? Now, baptism, uh, baptism represents the transformation that has taken place in our life that we've been buried with Christ and raised him in newness life. And oftentimes people do equate baptism with uh, circumcision. There's several reasons for that. But but actually, I think a better parallel is a parallel between circumcision and the Lord's Supper. Okay, And the Lord's Supper is that thing that we do regularly as a token or an emblem of the new covenant of this thing that Christ did on our behalf by which we become members of the community of God. Okay? And, and so, what we need to understand is that circumcision plays the same role in the Old Testament. That circumcision plays the role of a, of a sign or an evidence of an inner transformation of faith. Now Abraham only has one Abraham, excuse me, only has one reason to be circumcised. And his reason to be circumcised is that he believes the promise of God. If he doesn't believe the promise of God, there's no reason for him to be circumcised, right? I mean, there's nothing there. Why go through this painful experience if there's no reality to what it represents? But because Abraham believes God, he is circumcised. Okay. And not only is he circumcised, but he has everybody in his house circumcised. Okay. So, so circumcision then serves as a sign or token or an evidence or an emblem of this covenant that God has made with, uh, with Abram and with his descendants. I want you to notice just in passing, by the way, how oftentimes in this chapter God refers to it as my covenant, my covenant. My covenant. Seven times in 14 verses, he refers to it as my covenant. Not once does he refer to it as our covenant. He does on two occasions refer to it as the covenant between me and you. Okay. He does use that term, but at no point does he call it our covenant. He calls it my covenant. It's his. He takes it personally. And he takes personal responsibility for it. Okay. And he asks Abram then, Abraham, doesn't ask, he tells him, to be circumcised as a, as a permanent, and he stresses the permanence of it, as a permanent mark in his body and in the body of all the, his male descendants and male members of the patriarchal community and the community of faith, this 
this permanent mark in their body that would always remind them of God's covenant promise and that they're in on this deal. Okay. But we discover, as the story of redemption unfolds, we discover that, that it's possible to be circumcised and not be a member of the community of faith, right? In fact, by the time we get you know, into the New Testament, we find out it's really more common to be circumcised and not be in the community of faith than it is to be circumcised and be in the community of faith. And that's one of the evidences that circumcision is only a sign. Okay. But the problem is the Jews came to, after a while to understand that circumcision was everything. If you were circumcised, that was pretty much it. You were in. Okay. But that is not, in fact, the case. And as you get in, then into uh, the Exodus and Leviticus, you get into the law, we begin to encounter situations in which God says that there are people who are circumcised who will be cut off from the people. That is, they will be excluded from the community of faith. Why? Well, because of their disobedience and their sin and their unbelief, etc. And, and he gives several reasons for, uh, for it. So we come to understand then that circumcision is, is, is merely an external thing. I, don't, I shouldn't use the word merely because it was very important to God. But it was merely a, a, an external thing which was intended to represent an inner reality of a heart that was circumcised, of a heart in which the impurities and, and the sin and the things that displeased God had been cut away. They'd been cut off. So it represented, uh, it represented a purity, it was intended to represent a purity of heart relationship with God in which a person walked by faith in confidence and faith in the covenant of God and in the covenant promises of God. Now the question comes to mind, at least it does to my mind, why did God pick this particular son? I mean, wouldn't a tattoo been better? <laughs> you know, something everybody else could see maybe, you know, or something. You know. Why this seemingly very primitive, you know, kind of ugly, fairly painful practice, you know, that's kind of embarrassing to talk to, talk about, because especially in mixed company when we're talking about male genitals and things like that, you know, so it's not. Why does God pick circumcision of all things as a sign? Well, the reason is because of what we've just been talking about, about the covenant going back and renewing or recalling God's original purpose and intent in creation. What was his intent in creation when he created Adam and Eve? What did he want them to do? Be fruitful and multiply because he wanted them to fill the earth with a righteous generation. A righteous seed, right? That was his point. He wanted to fill the earth with people who were pure and who loved him and enjoyed him and worshipped him and he walked with them and he was their God and that was his purpose. And that is his purpose in the new, in, in this, I said new covenant, in the new covenant to Abraham here, to Abraham. In this covenant, in, in chapter 15 and chapter 17, that's God's, that's still God's intention. That is God's purpose. Is that the people of God would populate the earth with a righteous seed. That's what he wants. And so God institutes a sign of this covenant in the male organ of procreation. So that there is this permanent mark in the, in the physical flesh of every male member of the community of faith that reminds them that this whole thing about sex and procreation and regeneration and all that sort of thing, that all of that is about raising up a righteous seed. A pure seed. A seed dedicated to God. Okay? That God wants us as the righteous people to fill the earth with other righteous people. And I'm, and I'm led to recall at this point one of the two causes for the flood. Back in, in, 
Uh, earlier in Genesis, when we were talking about the flood, we talked about two causes of the flood. And one of the causes that, that Scripture gives us for the flood, one of the reasons why it was necessary for God to send the flood to destroy all mankind except for Noah and his family was what? It was that the sons of God were marrying whomever they pleased. They were marrying the daughters of men. I.e., the righteous seed, the righteous line, were intermarrying with the unrighteous line and producing unrighteous seed. And so what was happening there as you're, leading, as you're coming up into the, into, the, into the centuries just before the flood, what you have is eventually the righteous line is being completely decimated until you get close to the end and all you've got left are Noah and his three sons and their four wives. That's all you've got left. Yes? Yeah, yeah, really. That's, that, that's what Islam is doing, yes. Yeah, yeah. And there are two ways we do that. One is by the physical procreation of a righteous seed. Our responsibility is believers. Of course, now circumcision passes away with the advent of the church, and we're not going to take time to go into all of that, but that's all discussed in Acts 15 and, and, and other places in the New Testament. But the responsibility upon the community of faith is to fill the earth with a righteous seed. And the first way we do that is through the bearing of children and the raising up of those children to love and worship God. The second way we do that is we go out and we introduce others to this covenant promise of God. Okay? Now, what is striking, and we'll quit with this, what is striking to me, one of the things that's striking to me in this, in this promise of, of God, or, or this instruction of God to Abraham to circumcise, is he is also to circumcise not only his descendants, which included Ishmael, and eventually the sons of Keturah, his second wife. And also then includes people like Esau. Okay. Through, uh, through Isaac. Okay. It not only includes them, but it includes their servants in their house. And specifically the servants that they get from foreigners, i.e. foreigners were to be circumcised. What does that tell us about this plan of God? It's worldwide. That God now clearly most of those people in Abram's house who were circumcised didn't become people of faith and be people of the community of faith. You know, classically Ishmael and Esau, okay, but presumably also the sons of Keturah, some of them. But what but what God is saying is, I want to extend this covenant to everybody. It's not limited to one race. It's not limited to one people. Now, the way somebody identified with that promise of the covenant in the Old Testament, even if they were a Gentile, if they wanted to be a part of that promise of God and of that covenant, what did they do? They were circumcised. It was their way of saying, I believe God and I believe his promises and I want to be a part of that. And so God makes it very clear that it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the physical descendants of Abraham. But it's even for those who enter into the fold of Abraham, his servants and, and the servants who are born in his house, but even servants that he buys and brings into his house, that he buys from foreigners. Foreigners that are brought into his house are circumcised and they are encouraged to believe this covenant and become a part of this covenant. And this is the work that God is doing. God is overcoming the fall. God is overcoming the devastation of the fall. And God, El Shaddai, the Almighty, is accomplishing this powerful thing. That he is raising up yet a righteous generation, a righteous seed. And He is going to populate a place that will be full of people who love and worship and adore Him. And it can only done by, be done by El Shaddai. It can't be done by anybody else. It can only be done by the Almighty God. But He's doing it. And that's what the new heavens and the new earth are all about. The new earth is going to be a place that is like the old, like the first, like the created earth, in that it's going to be beautiful, it's going to be splendid, it's going to be pure, and it's going to be a place in which people who have had the old flesh cut away 
and who are pure and holy and devoted to God worship and endure him, enjoy Him and fellowship with Him forever as an everlasting covenant. Okay? That's all for today.